Uh, you ready to go? I'm all good. Wins. Wins were treated as a sign of progress. Losses were part of the plan, said Andrew Sharp, an NBA writer and Sam Hinkie critic. Yo, welcome to my summer layer. I'm your host and all-star winner, Sammy Yunan. And today's episode is an NBA episode. Yes. Sam Hinkie is a spark of Yaron Weitzman's book, Tanking to the Top, the Philadelphia 76ers, and the most audacious process in the history of professional sports, what we call trust the process for short. To recap, following the 2012-2013 season, the Sixers, led by new GM Sam Hinkie, shifted the direction of rebuilding the franchise. By November 2014, the Sixers had set a franchise record for losses to start the season with a record 0-17 start. The NBA record for a bad start is 0-18. Yeah, losing sucks. By April 6, 2016, Sam Henke resigned. However, during his time, he was able to draft Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons, and a few other key players to set up Philadelphia as a potential title contender. I know, I still have issues with this whole thing. What matters more, the road trip or the destination? I was elated to pick up Yaron Weitzman's book and get into all of this because I'm a critic. I don't believe you can build a winning culture by losing. I believe that losing violates, for lack of a better term, the purity of the game. So, let's get into all of this with Yaron Weitzman. Hi, Sammy. How's it going? Okay, what about you? I'm all right. So, you're an NBA writer for Bleacher Report. What have you been doing when there's no NBA to be reporting? <laughs> um, well, there's no NBA to report on, like, it's not games. Mm-hmm. So, just kind of finding the stories, whether it's um, trying to get beneath the business side of things or trying to do other you know, stories that maybe are more evergreen, as we call them, things that um, can kind of run any time. Um, also, doing things related to the shutdown. Like, I did a story on, like, what NBA players, like, the new hobbies they're picking up. You know, at their home. So there's all types of little things like that, um, little money things. So there's stuff. Yeah, it's harder. No games. It's a little different. But there's still, um, there's still a league uh, business and um, a thing to cover. Yeah, I mean, timing's everything, right? In comedy and in sports. And your book, Tanking to the Top: The Philadelphia 76ers and the Most Audacious Process in the History of Professional Sports, it arrived shortly before the Last Dance was broadcast on ESPN. And now everyone's kind of aggressively going after former Bulls GM Jerry Krause, uh, who unfortunately is dead and cannot defend himself. Your book deals with the Sixers GM, uh, former GM Sam Hinkie, and a lot of people went after him. In both cases, do we know enough about being a GM and all the stuff that kind of goes on behind the scenes to really be having these discussions? Yeah, I think so. I mean, for one, it's, uh, we don't necessarily know all the things, but you see the results, right? And mm-hmm. you can base things off results. Like Jerry Krause, yeah, it's weird going after a guy who's the one guy not there who's dead and can't stand up for himself. On the other hand, you know, you have quotes, you know, preseason quotes from him saying, yeah, Phil Jackson's not coming back. This should be the last year, which is a very weird thing that, you know, sort of unprecedented, really. Like, it'd be like if last year or two years ago, the Warriors announced that Steve Poe wasn't coming back, you know. Um, it would just be a big deal and strange. Yeah, if you go 82-0. and 0, Exactly. So in terms of the Sixers, yeah, no, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I guess if you read the book, I think you can learn some, you know, and make your, make an opinion about Sam Hankey. Mm-hmm. But it's, uh, yeah, it's, but I think we don't know. I mean, it's, it comes down to different opinions on how things are executed, I guess. Yeah. 
this is a tangent, but since I brought it up, like, what are your last dance feelings or your Michael Jordan feelings? Uh, last dance, I mean, going to episodes, um, my aesthetic, I, I thought it was fun. I'm happy to see Michael Jordan, you know, you show me three, Michael Jordan relaxing in a chair, smoking a cigar, drinking scotch, and telling stories. I'll listen to that, watch that anytime. Yes. It's, uh, it's fun. It's fun. It's fun. I would like to see some more in, behind the scenes stuff we haven't seen. My understanding is that's going to be coming in the next few episodes because this was just about laying the groundwork for maybe people who don't, um, remember Jordan. No, you're like a teenager in France. Um, uh, no, but I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I'm curious to see what it goes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, as we alluded to already, your book, Tanking to the Top, uh, deals with Sam Henke and the whole trust the process for the Philadelphia 76ers. So, how are you describing this book? Is it an NBA story about the Philadelphia 76ers? Is it like a business book about taking the long view, which of course feeds into the classic American startup myth? Or is it a commentary on analytics? Like, how are you describing this book? Um... I mean, I kind of describe it as a book about how the NBA works, right? It's just how the NBA works. I don't know all of what you mentioned, right? No, there's definitely parts of it. Um, uh, it's not, I'd say it's more focused. I focus more on the um, backroom stuff. One of you called it an HR melodrama, which I thought was funny. Um, <laughs> great, but it, um, it's not Moneyball in terms of the idea that, like, it's all a book to show you how to find a market efficiency. Um, and it's not just... It's not a school. It's not a book that like a business school is going to teach and say this. Look at this great leadership by Sam Hankey. This is what we should be emulating in our conference rooms, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little different than that. Yeah, reading it for most of your book, Sam Hankey kind of operates in the shadows, and it reminded me of the Nolan movie, The Dark Knight. Towards the end of that movie, James Gordon says he's talking about Batman, but he says because we have to chase him because he's the hero Gotham deserves, but not the one it needs right now. So we'll hunt him because he can take it, because he's not a hero. He's a silent guardian, a watchful protector, a dark knight. Was Hinky's decision to not talk about the process basically that he was doing was on the record during his time in Philly, was that, you think that was another mistake, or just he just recognized what James Gordon just said, which is that he can take the hate? Um, I wonder about that. Yes and no, and some mistake. Um, well, I think that gets over the idea of not talking about it. Maybe now it's become more prevalent than then in the five, six years that have passed, seven years, uh, in terms of executives not necessarily talking to the media. Mm-hmm. He was very upfront. Like, I don't know. He didn't talk about it clearly. He didn't, he wasn't outright, but also he, he was both not outright, but also upfront, you know, in terms of what they were doing. People were very, um, people were very, uh, it was very clear, you know, people were very aware of what the strategy was. And I think part of him not talking was the idea that he felt like, some of the, and he's right about this, right? He thought that he would sound, it would sound, um, it would be too much ego, too much egotistical. It would sound arrogant if he, if he were to talk about how well, like, all their giant plan, what they're losing, this would kind of happen, right? Like, some of the criticisms that people would say about him, or some of the criticisms that were often bothering him, that he was arrogant, he felt that, you know, if he spoke more, that would only uh, strengthen those arguments. So there's a different side, but I do think um, there's a way to kind of work the political side of the job that he sort of missed out on. Yeah, was was optimism a, a flaw then, or how would you consider? Like, because the idea of the the tanking the process was that you would eventually get good picks, and you have enough like cracks at the bat. Basically, the more first and second round picks you had, you would be optimistic that you could turn this around. Um, so was optimism kind of like? The flaw, I guess, if that's the way to put it, in terms of like people buying in, like there's no guarantee that they will get better. 
Um, so, uh, but, but what do you mean about smooth the flow? Like, I mean, the strategy, it wasn't, there's no guarantee the idea he wanted to call, he called it smooth of the plate, right? We, we needed one as many as a blackjack. We're going to take a bunch of lottery picks. If we only hit on a few, that's fine. And that's all we need. He was right about that, right? They hit on, I mean, he left before Simmons, but they hit on, they missed on a bunch, and yet they still got Embiid and Simmons. But you have those two guys, you're a championship contender. So, so that, yeah, it wasn't optimism. I think he just thought, he was um, he was operating under the assumption and the agreement that he would have a runway. He had years to, you know, it wasn't a timeline. He needed years to get around in two, three years. And by doing that, that was almost a marketing efficiency. The, the ability to build six years out, something like that, that's something that put him in a position that he could target things that other teams couldn't, and that allowed him to sort of take advantage of the market. Like you talk about in the book, you have a great line where you say Hinky triggered a culture war. And, like, for example, you, you live in New York City, and the Knicks have famously been bad for, like, about 20 years or so. Is that on end losing with no clear direction, like, almost comforting, almost in a way, than what Hinky did in terms of, like, because Hinky was really polarizing, and the whole process has a lot of, like, people on both sides of the fence. I think, I think uh, he, um, I don't know, I think Knicks fans, I, I think that's, I think Knicks fans would be happy to have a plan, man. I think he had a plan, they're losing, but it was a coherent plan. I think that's okay. I think, I actually think most fans would prefer that. Um, not all, right? Kind of depends. I mean, it, it's a big, there's an age divide off on other stuff in terms of what people are looking for. People who are older sometimes just want to come home from work and play a game on and don't really care. The team building side is want to have an escape for two hours and if the team is literally built to lose, that doesn't help. Um, some people are really, really younger and came up reading different types of foods. Sports writing and following the game differently and doing it from a GM's perspective, which is something that has definitely gone on recently. Like we all do players with assets and we all kind of operate from that perspective. Um, I think they appreciate and they're all about championship building. And they wanted to see that. Like she that could see that this was mostly this was the right idea. So in the end, did the did losing make the seventy sixers better? Like is there any way to even quantify that? They were relevant before. They're they matter now. I guess they, they had. I guess they fought them down by the second round. But no, I think so. I mean, they had no shot at championship. Now they're a contender. It hasn't gone as well. We think some mistakes in the year recent years. But it's exactly going down to black and white. Yeah, no, they were. I mean, the Forbes rankings. You look at like they were worth two hundred fifty million beforehand. Now they're worth like two billion. So, yeah. so that is kind of yeah. So there is a way to quantify it then. I mean, that's one way. Yeah, right. It's going to go based on value. Yeah, because the thing, too, with winning, winning covers a lot of sins. And I think that was part of the problem is that when, like, Shaq and Kobe infamously did not get along and they had a lot of issues, but because they kept winning championships for the most part, it wallpapered all of that, and it was allowed them able to kind of keep going. Uh, I think if they had been, like, on losing teams year after year after year, that would have taken its toll. Yeah, no, I mean, for sure. For, I mean, I get, yeah, but I mean, yeah, for the goal, one the point wasn't to win, right? So... <laughs> It's not originally, um, and that's. It, it just, I mean, but the biggest thing that changed is I think he, he underestimated some of the political forces, whether it's uh, colleagues, agents, opposing owners, things like that. How they would feel mm-hmm. about the uh, about a team kind of essentially not trying, and uh, more importantly, how he, he underestimated or his ownership, the owners underestimated how much they cared about the public perception. Yeah, and well, how does player development also factor in because that's another like time issue right like Ben Simmons was drafted in 2016 and his shot was wasn't really there but everyone's like all right he's a rookie that's fine I know he kind of was injured the first year but now it's like there's a little bit more more pressure developing on Ben Simmons to like get a shot or start shooting threes so like 
do you find that the there is a patience for player development, both from like a fan perspective, but also from like an ownership management perspective? Is that there is patience? I mean, that was the whole they hired Brett Brown as a player development guy, right? That was one of his big points. That's why they hired him. One of the reasons they hired him. So, no, ownership is not player development. I just, like, that's, you know, that's one of the things that they put a lot of money, they hire a lot of assistants, they put a lot of devoted a lot of time player development. But, I mean, player development is a funny thing, right? Because you, you can be great at player development, but if you're signing a bunch of undrafted, you know, a bunch of guys who are F's and you develop them up to D's, um, is that like, it doesn't affect your NBA team, you know, as opposed to if you draft a bunch of guys for A's or F's, right? So, it's, it, it, I don't know. Would this process have worked if it had been a different city other than Philadelphia? Because Philadelphia, I mean, like, is notoriously a tough, like, in terms of fan base, they're tough. They've booed Santa Claus. Um, would this would have worked maybe in a more, like, one sport town, like something like Oklahoma City, where, like, there's more alignment between the fans and the franchise? I mean, yeah, but, uh, I mean, the big chunk of fan base brought bought in. So I wasn't really a fan thing. I mean, some didn't. Maybe in a smaller town, it'd be different. Um, but no, a big part of a big part broke bought in. It was the idea again. It was ownership. It, it was the it was it was ownership and not being interested or not liking the fact that their uh, you know their colleagues at school on and were complaining about how the Sixers are hurting the bottom line. The league office wasn't happy. You can kind of point it curtain on the whole idea. The whole idea just selling a competitive product. One team's not doing that. They all these factors. Agents weren't happy. And then there was some of the. Um, I think the pushover was Jimmy Local for, you know, being drunk on TMZ mm-hmm. um, and capturing that. Um, and that was kind of a struggle broke the camel's back, again, with a perception problem. So it wasn't really fan. It was more just this noise. The Okafor example in the book was really interesting because there also didn't seem to be a lot of emphasis on, like, how the players would fit, like, emotionally or if they were looking for, like, a mental strength, mental fortitude. There didn't seem to be those kind of elements, or at least you didn't really emphasize them, like... They just seem to be drafting like from whatever their analytics were, really quality players to fit the system, basically, and then that would hopefully then start winning games eventually. Is that accurate? Um, the idea, they want they want something on fit, right? The idea was to take the best the best player they thought age pay and deal to later, right? You could trade or whatever. That asset hunting and value. Uh, I mean, that's the basics. That's the basics, right? Mm-hmm. Like so, you know, Okafor, he was the best player. They had Noel and Embiid, but they thought Okafor was the best player. Available, they take him and you deal with it later. I still don't understand the tension then between like hiring Brett Brown, for example, right? Like he's he's hired to uh, basically build a winning culture or kind of keep the players motivated until they can hire and start winning games. But it's kind of a weird tension to have to try and kind of build a winning culture or develop players if you're not actually winning games. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, for example, that's all. Yes, that's that's one of the hardest things to do, and that was Brett Brown's job, right? I mean, there's no. It's here. There's no way to say yes. That's that's a tough job to build a culture if you're not winning, and to not have that be repeated. The the losses and the idea that you know you're going to the game public knowing you're going to lose, not have that ruin the whole atmosphere. That's one of the most things. And Brett did a great job with it early on. Yeah. Well, I mean, now it seems the noise has kind of ratcheted it up. Before the noise was for like the process and the losing, but now the noise seems to focus on Brett Brown and kind of either like his job's in danger or he needs to go. Uh, do you think he will survive uh, for the next like season? I know it's on hold right now, but do you think he'll survive for the next season? Hard to say. Before people were in the league before the shutdown were under, most people thought that if they didn't make it at the final, he was probably going to be replaced. What happens now and how anyone handles that kind of stuff as uh, with the way the league, the calendar changing, all that—it's impossible to say. Mm-hmm. 
And so as you've been kind of doing interviews and you've been getting reviews and stuff like this for this book, are people still angry over this process or are they kind of like resigned? Have they kind of, has it shifted how people have looked at it and view it? No, I mean, I think a lot of people, I don't think, I don't think, uh, this is kind of how things go in life, right? I think people who thought what they originally thought, I don't think they've been swayed, right? It's, there's not much you can be swayed. You know, if you think this was great, I think he was went out of town unfairly, then you're going to believe that, probably. I mean, I guess, I guess I should say that. I think everyone's kind of realized that both, all sides have valid points, and there's been, you know, whether Hinky made some, even Hinky staunch supporters would say he made some mistakes, he can handle a few things better. I think the people who want to hank you out, seeing what he's replaced with and how things went since he left, um, might have a little more um, patience or appreciation for the way he operated. I think it goes both ways. And what is Hinky up to now? You had a. It's kind of interesting how you kind of end the book. Like he actually kind of left the NBA, right? Correct. Yeah, he's uh, he's living the uh, Silicon Valley life out in out in the uh, West Coast. Um, out in your San Francisco area. Um, he's teaching at Stanford a little bit. He's doing some investing, kind of living. Yeah, I, I'll repeat, the best way I can describe it is living the uh, Silicon Valley life. Interesting. Yeah, so when you look at, like, what Philadelphia has done, and then you look at, like, Daryl Morey as kind of like a companion or a mirror to Sam Hinkie and what he's doing with Microball in uh, Houston, are you are you excited by these kind of, like, innovations and changes to, like, the quote-unquote, the process and how we draft players and build teams and stuff like this? Or are you kind of, like, um, aligned with kind of, like, the traditional ways, I guess, for lack of a better term? Um, I mean, again, I think if you go black and white, yeah, like, I, I think you should always be trying to think critically and differently and, you know, look at what you're doing. Like, this. The, the answer, because it's how we've always done things, is usually not a good answer, right? But I, I also think, and I think most people don't even know that, the idea that this is, that like, scouts versus analytics guys is really not... I don't think that's what the league really consists of. At least to smart things down. Most people know how to combine, how to combine all that stuff. You can look at the numbers and do that. But basketball is also a uh, a game where chemistry and gut fit and things like that matter. Um, and there's a role for that. So it's kind of about combining all these different areas. Yeah, I mean, just going full circle back to the last dance, we just saw that because in the first episode, Jordan was selected third, and. Um, it, again, like it made sense, like when you look at the whole way that it all unfolded with him in Chicago, like if he had gone to Houston or if he had gone to the Lakers, it might have been a completely different story. So it, it, whatever it was, the basketball gods or whatever it was that arranged that, that like worked and that made sense. But yeah, right. For sure, basketball is one of those. I mean, I think chemistry matters in all sports, but basketball, I would say, more than most. Right? Um, it's, a, it's a team game. So having gone through this process of uh, writing the book, and you survived the process, so congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> it's not, writing a book's not always an easy feat. Are you interested in doing another book after this? I know this one just came out, but are you itching to go back to it and kind of like... Yeah, at some point, I don't know. Yeah, at some point, I don't know. I don't know. I don't feel like it is, but I think so. Yeah, but no, I would like to. I enjoy it. I enjoy diving into one topic like that. All right. Uh, I think that's it. We covered the the main things. Uh, we covered Sam Hankey. We covered the process, uh, the frustration. And uh, that's it. Yeah. Thank you for your time. All right. Great. No, I think that's it. Sounds good to me. All right. Cool. Thank you. Yo, welcome to some notes and noteworthy on Yaron Weitzman's tanking to the top, the Philadelphia 76ers, and the most audacious process in the history of professional sports. Whew. 
not a title for Twitter. The last two words are key. Professional sports. Professional sports are set up for the future, not for the present. A high school player plays basketball well enough to earn attention from scouts and receive a scholarship from a Division I school. That's still the process, not the destination. The goal is the NBA. But first, the player must play well, again, and stay healthy, again, in college to be drafted into the NBA. However, in the NBA, to be a lottery pick means going to a bad team and endure losing. So again, he must wait for a future where he's surrounded by talented players, for when the team is good. Then they gotta make a championship run, or possibly deal with injuries, or overcome injuries. We ask all the time, who's going to win this year? Who will win the NBA playoff series? Even when a team is down at halftime, they make adjustments to win in the upcoming quarters. So a key focus of professional sports is the future. We talk a lot about the future, even though we're in the present. I accept all of that, yet what's the process to go from today to the future? The Warriors' record in 2011-2012 was 23-43. and That sucks. By 2015, they were NBA champs. That doesn't suck. In November 2017, I reluctantly agreed with Stephen A. Smith. I know, I know what happens once in a while. Who said this about the Sixers. And you're making no effort to win. I think it's disgraceful. I think it's disgusting. I can't stand it. I don't want to hear a damn thing about it. I couldn't do the whole screaming uh, imitation. Winning is a culture. So is losing. You can't just flip the switch from tanking to winning. I don't trust the process. I trust the rings. There's always a but. What's fascinating is that analytics have changed the way players are drafted, how plays and defenses are adjusted. We now have the player efficiency rating and the defensive player rating. Though what hasn't changed as a significant metric is good old-fashioned wins and losses. To the public and to the basketball record, a player with a solid player efficiency rating is worthless. If his record is 10 and 72, that's the cultural war that Hinky ignited. He defied convention. Which is why tanking to the top is fascinating. It takes no curse to use a sidewalk. That's the path laid out for everyone. To chart your own path means getting lost as much as it means having the stomach to stay the course. Trust the process is like an obese person with a really good heart. They volunteer and help others. They read self-help books and go to church and are really spiritual and loving and full of grace. They're actively working on themselves emotionally and spiritually, which is important. The problem, though, is that they are obese, and that's all people see. So they get judged by their looks, not by the contents of their heart. On page 53, Yaron writes, Sam Hinkie knew that five teams had combined to win 20 of the previous 23 titles. He knew that these teams had monopolized the NBA championship trophy because they boasted multiple all-time greats, players like Jordan, Elijah Wan, Kobe, Shaq, Wade, and so on. He also knew that typically these players spent the majority of their careers playing for the teams that originally drafted them. And in those rare cases when they changed teams, looking at you, LeBron, it was usually to link up with a star somewhere else. And Hankey knew that these types of players were typically selected early in the draft. Not exactly a staggering insight, right? What the Sixers really believed, though, was that running an NBA team was about asking the right questions, studying the right data, leveraging that information to gaining a competitive advantage, and basing every decision off that approach. 
It was about having a process and trusting that over the results. That's a hard sell for the NBA, for fans paying big money for tickets, and for players, for all involved. So, obviously, Sam Hankey didn't finish what he started. Tanking to the top does a solid job of documenting the process that ultimately led to his departure. Sam Hankey was a man with a vision who unfortunately was unable to successfully sell that vision. Like that line from Terminator movies, come with me if you want to live. Imagine saying, yeah, no thanks, <laughs> I'm good. On the first page of the book, the first page of the book, it's a Sam Hankey confession. I am perfectly comfortable with everyone drawing their own conclusions. I don't have any interest or willingness to quote-unquote shape a legacy. I'm not built that way. It's just not what I want to do. Which is wild because legacy is the other key aspect of professional sports. The past matters as much as the future. Did losing make the 76ers better? When the NBA shot down for the pandemic, they were the sixth seed battling the Pacers for the fifth seed. Not exactly a title contender. Look, everything is a referendum now, especially online. Nothing is truly settled. A few minutes on Twitter confirms nothing you believe is universal. This book will provoke a number of emotions. And really, no matter what the future holds, this will always be a part of the Sixers' past. So, what matters more? Is it the road trip? Or is it the destination? Let me know what you think about either tanking the process, the 76ers, or any other NBA feelings or facts you have. My name is Sam Unin. I am at my pal Sammy for all the three social media outlets. IG, Twitter, Facebook, my pal Sammy. Thank you so, so much for listening to me in a Netflix world. Oh, if you found this one garbled, I guess it's probably pointless to put this at the end, but if you found this one a little bit garbled or hard to hear, there is a transcript up at my summer layer. Trust the process, yo.